On the evening that Jesus gave to his apostles the Last Supper, the Eucharist, announcing that he would, uh, in fact, give us his body and blood, on that night he prayed what was called the great priestly prayer we find in John chapter 17. It's a long prayer. We'll look at it in a moment. But in the midst of that, he prayed for unity. He said, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. But what did Jesus mean by the unity that he prayed for? How do we experience that unity as Christian brothers and sisters? Well, that's a bit of what we'll talk about today on Deep in Scripture. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International studios in central Ohio, but coming to you over EWTN Radio. Thank you for joining us. As we do each week on this program, I invite a guest to join me to talk about a favorite scripture, a particular scripture that awakened them to a deeper walk with Jesus Christ, and particularly open their heart to the beauty of the fullness of the Catholic faith. And our guest today is a a guest that joined me on the Journey Home program on EWTN a while back, and his name is Scott Carson. He is a professor at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. He's a professor in philosophy. He uh, has a, a very strong academic background. He uh, studied classics and history at Kent State University. He then later received a Ph.D. in classics at the University of North Carolina, and then a Ph.D. in philosophy from Duke University. So he brings with him uh, you know, a lot of academics, especially a commitment to the study of philosophy. In fact, uh, he's even now taking a break to do this program. He's teaching a course in uh, the philosophy of science, so maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. But he converted to the Catholic Church in 1983 on the feast of the birth of St. John the Baptist. He had been an Episcopalian since 1979. Prior to that, he was basically an agnostic bordering on atheism, uh, though his father's side of the family was predominantly Presbyterian and his mother's Baptist. He lives in Athens with his wife of 21 years, Lisa. He's got a son, age 16, Michael, and a daughter, Olivia, age 9, and they attend St. Paul's Catholic Church in Athens. So he's not really that far down the road from where we're broadcasting today uh, from just north of Zanesville, out in the middle of a cornfield. So we're, we're great to have Scott join us today. Uh, the scripture that he chose today is that long priestly prayer from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And I'm going to read that in a moment. In fact, I'm going to read the whole thing. That may not be the best radio, but for those of you that don't have a scripture in front of you or the Internet, we'd love to hear the entire prayer and to listen to the prayer. What was it that Jesus sensed a need to pray to the Father as he had just completed, if we assume that this entire context of John is correct, he had just completed giving his apostles uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He talked to them in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 about what would happen after he left their presence and they received the Holy Spirit. And at the end of that, he prays this what's called the priestly prayer. And again, before I read that, I want to remind you of our website, deepinscripture.com, where you can follow along with the program. We have a newly designed website in which you can easily click on the link and watch this program live. So let's take a moment, and I'm going to read John chapter 17, uh, verses 1 all the way through verse 26. When Jesus had said this, he raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son so that your Son may glorify you, just as you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to all you gave him. And this is eternal life, that you should know, that they should know you, the only true God and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify me, Father, with you, with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. 
They belong to you, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you gave me is from you, because the works, the words you gave me to me, I have given to them. And they accepted them and truly understood that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for the ones you have given me, because they are yours. And everything of mine is yours, and everything of yours is mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I will no longer be in the world, but they are in the world, while I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are. When I was with them, I protected them in your name that you gave me, and I guarded them. And none of them was lost except the son of destruction, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. I speak this in the world, so that they may share my joy completely. I gave them your word, and the world hated them, because they do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. Consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And I consecrate myself for them, so that they also may be consecrated in truth. I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. Father, they are your gift to me. I wish that where I am they also may be with me, that they may see my glory that you gave me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world also does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grody's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grody's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at one 800 664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by uh, Dr. Scott Carson. Hello, Scott. Hi, how you doing? Well, I'm great. Thank you for joining us, uh, taking time out of your teaching schedule. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it, it's great to have you back. And uh, I mentioned earlier that you're actually teaching a course, an online course, right, on science and religion? Well, it's really just an introduction to the philosophy of science. But yeah, it's online, and it's sort of a, uh, a convenient little way for me to, to teach, because I get to work at home. You know, uh, Scott, I, uh, 
my undergraduate degree was in science, uh, in actually polymer science. Oh, wow. Uh, four years of engineering, math, physics, chemistry. And during those four years, not one course on history, not one course really? on theology, one course on history, on English. I wish I'd have studied more English. I wouldn't talk so stupid. Uh, but I think even more importantly, not one course in philosophy. Wow. And uh, I'm wondering, from your perspective, is part of the problem we get ourselves into in our world, especially in the science realm, is because we have too many sciences, scientists that do not have a firm foundation in, in good philosophy. Well, of course, I'd be really happy if more people took philosophy courses. Right. Uh, and, and so I certainly think, yes, that, that um, if more people were exposed to philosophy, and, and in particular, just the the rigors of critical thinking that philosophy is uh, sort of principally interested in, that that would be a really good thing. But my, my view about, to answer your question in a more general way, I think that it, uh, the broad-based sort of education that you're talking about, you know, uh, an exposure to the various disciplines in the humanities, whether it be philosophy or English or history or literature, uh, there's no such thing as too much of that. And so anyone who's a science major, I would, I would very much recommend looking at the history of science and particularly looking at uh, what was written by people who were sort of involved in the growth of the sciences and, and just sort of exposing themselves to different ways of looking at various sorts of questions and, and being a little more critical themselves about their yeah. own methods, their own procedures, their own assumptions about what it is they're doing and why. Yeah, I, I, I admittedly look back on my undergraduate education with a bit of regret. I, I'm very grateful, you know, that God had provided that great education. It got me jobs. Everything was was a good background. Uh, but uh, the fact that there was no liberal arts element to it without a good foundation in history and philosophy uh and English, particularly uh, languages, I regret that. And when I went to school, every class was chosen uh, uh, in the uh, as to whether it would help me get a job. I see. Uh -huh. So structured curriculum. Oh yeah. And I look back, and I really encourage my sons not to think that way at all. Uh, to think more in terms of a, a wider, more balanced education. And both of them are getting a stronger liberal arts background so uh, you know, I'm very committed to that having you back Scott it's great to have you you chose John 17 maybe in general why this particular passage for you well I thought long and hard about it uh, I, I do have a lot of different scripture texts that I could maybe count as among my favorite and so when <laughs> I said well you know choose something I, I was a little bit perplexed as to what to choose but I, in remembering the the overall mission uh, of your ministry and and uh, and also uh, when we met last fall on the journey home, mm -hmm. I got to thinking about uh, things that had affected me in my conversion to Catholicism, and in particular thinking about um, what is meant by the notion of Christian unity. Um, even within the Catholic Church, we see signs of disunity uh, on occasion. Right? People mm -hmm. argue about you know should we bring back elements of the traditional mass, or, or should we have the, the emphasis on you know, peace and justice issues rather than on pro-life issues, or are, are those things really uh, at odds with each other or not? Um, so in other words, basically kinds of political conflict right. uh, that you find, whether they're having to do with church polity or just you know, liturgical aesthetics or, or what have you. Uh, this is the kind of disunity I was already beginning to experience uh, a great deal of when I was an Episcopalian, and, and of course that was a long time ago. That was before uh, a lot of the stuff that's going on now. Uh, I was already sort of sensing that that there was not as much unity uh, in in my denomination as it seemed like there ought to be. So I, in 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 making the decision to convert, I, I thought a lot about what kind of unity Christ had in mind in this particular prayer. Uh, so this, this was a sort of a formative passage for me mm -hmm. in thinking about what are the reasons for attaching yourself to a particular ecclesial community. And the notion of unity uh, that sort of jumps out at me from this text was something that I felt uh, was present principally in, in the Roman Catholic Church. 
So my main reason for choosing it is, is principally because it, it spoke so clearly to me uh, in my own conversion process. Uh, I mean, I, I was sort of torn between this one uh, and the story of the prodigal son in the Gospel <laughs> of Luke, which I suppose is, you know, in the top five of everybody's favorite I gospel never passages. Know. Sounds like it's for our next program with yeah. you. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, well, I just love that story, and yeah. I could talk about it all day. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I was a little bit, you know, I, I just couldn't decide. But I thought, well, the notion of unity, though, especially at yeah. the end of this uh, chapter, maybe we'll get to it uh, mm-hmm. before the show is over, um, the notion that um, what Christ wishes for his disciples is a kind of joy that, that flows from the love that he and the Father have, that struck me as being not all that disconnected from the story of the prodigal son anyway. Right. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, this covers most of the bases that I'm interested in, in covering when it, when it comes to you know, what, what's important to me about, about being a Roman Catholic. Yeah, that issue of unity was important to me also on the journey, and I remember at some point when I was a Presbyterian pastor with a group of friends, posed a question, and it's very vague in my mind what happened, but what I was thinking about was, you know, how do you, what constitutes unity? And I envisioned a very, very large round table, if you can imagine it, with a representative of every Christian tradition sitting around it. And so today that would be a, a pretty big table, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's, it would be almost infinite because of the number of different. And then assuming just for the moment that you or I, Scott, are, are at least true. In other words, I'm trying to narrow this table down to have only sitting at the table with me those that are in union with me. Okay. And, you know, you could easily start, you know, asking people to leave the table. You know, there's the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses because there's lots of theological issues we don't agree on. And then pretty soon the table gets narrow and narrower on the meaning of baptism, the meaning of Eucharist, or the meaning of ordination. And pretty soon there's less and less people at the table. And the more I thought about it, it, it... I never reached a point where I couldn't keep putting somebody away from the table because there's no one, no other Christian group that I completely 100% agree with on some doctrinal or social issue, political issue. It comes down to just me, and you and I might even end up at different tables, (laughs) especially if you were an Episcopalian and I was a Presbyterian. Right. Um, and, and so what is meant by unity? What was he praying for? What kind of unity existed between he and the Father that he wants in us? I mean, I, I think that's a very significant question, which it sounds like that's the one that really opened your heart to the Church. In a lot of ways, it, it really was, because, of course, uh, one of the first things you begin to notice uh, as an Episcopalian, um, I, I mean, the sort I was, I, I was they call high church Episcopalian. I really sure. love the liturgy. And mm-hmm. for me, I mean, coming from agnosticism and, and what was basically functionally atheism, uh, coming into the church, one of the things that, that principally moved me was the power and the force of the liturgical actions that you that you get to experience. And and certainly in the Episcopal Church, it's very similar to what you find in the Catholic Church in that regard. Um, but you, you quickly begin to find that um, in, in spite of the unity of action in those liturgical services, there is a really sort of marked difference of opinion when it comes to all sorts of things. And there's no recourse that that I could see in the Episcopal Church for settling these disputes. And so you would, we we were already experiencing, you know, when I became an Episcopalian, it was 1979, I think, and that was already several years after the Episcopal Church had started, in the United States, had started ordaining women which already gave rise to yeah. a, a sort of a major <laughs> departure uh, of people mm-hmm. from the Episcopal Church at that time. And who do you turn to when, when you want to find out, you know, um, what is it necessary to commit myself to? If, if I have a view which I think is grounded in the Scriptures and someone else has a completely um, contradictory view that, that they think is also grounded in the Scripture. How do you settle this dispute? You, you really see that today, of course, with yeah. the dispute over the ordination of um, actively homosexual mm-hmm. clergy. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the, the person who brought me into the church, into the Episcopal Church, uh, Robert Duncan, who is now himself has, has left the Episcopal Church over over these kinds of issues. Um, at that time, when when I was just a, a parishioner at, at the place where he was a college chaplain, um, in, in talking about these things, he would always emphasize, well, the tradition. Right? The Episcopal Church is is built on this triad: scripture, tradition, and um, I just can't remember what the third thing was. <laughs> I look back on it, but tradition was definitely one of the. Uh, it'll come to me. It might actually be liturgy, uh, scripture, liturgy, and tradition. But but he certainly emphasized the role of tradition yeah. in unifying Christians. And of course, the irony of it was that the you know the Episcopal Church, as a, a branch of the of the Anglican Church, uh, in some ways was itself a manifestation of a willful breaking from a tradition. <laughs> right. Uh, and I think he he must be experiencing the irony of that even more intensely now that he himself has has. I mean, he was bishop of Pittsburgh for the Episcopal Church until relatively recently, and he was uh, literally uh, whatever you call it dethroned or whatever you know they they deposed him. The the, the, uh, the Episcopal uh, Church deposed him from that. Uh, so he must be. And uh, and in my opinion, uh, they deposed him for. You know, the, the views that he held are perfectly orthodox views about matrimony and the sacredness of marriage and, and all of those things, and he was deposed for those views. So uh, in my view, he must be thinking this is really ironic in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I a mean, hundred years ago, the Episcopalians, the faithful from top to bottom, would have never dreamed what is being declared as de fide teaching within the Episcopal Church today. They would never dream that it would come this far. I'm sure there's no evidence they would have ever dreamed yeah. that. But yet now it's defeat a teaching that you must, you can't speak against us within the Episcopal Church. At least I'm assuming the direction it's going, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that begs the question on not just the issue of unity, but of course on the authority to determine what is true, um, and it even begs the question of a, of a statement that it says in verse 3 of this text, Now this is eternal life, that they should know you, the only true God, and and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. I mean, this issue of knowing, right, right. of being certain, uh, and uh, knowing what is true. Um, and what is the word? That That's part of this passage. Right. Your word is truth. But what constitutes the word of God? Um, you, you'd said there was a three-leg stool for Episcopalians. Is that what determines the word of God? Let's take a break. When we come back, Scott, what I want you to do, it's a big, big chapter. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll let you choose when we come back which verse you want to jump in at. All right. We can't cover everything today. Right. But where do you want to go from here? We'll, we'll see that in a moment. Okay. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Scott Carson, and you're hearing us on EWTN. Global Catholic Radio Network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Next time on EWTN Live. There are many offices, councils, and congregations in the Vatican, and they all have important roles in the church. Join Father Mitch as he talks with Archbishop Raymond L. Burke about his role as Prefect of the Apostolic Signatura. That's on the next EWTN Live. EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by uh, Scott Carson. And we're looking at John chapter 17, verses 1 through 26. All right, Scott, which one do you want to jump in on? Well, I think that um, taking as a starting point the thing sure. you just read, uh, that eternal life uh, consists in knowing the only true God. Yes. Uh, this this issue of, of knowledge, that, that there is a certain doctrinal element to being unified with God. It's not just a, a purely uh, emotivist or, or, or strictly in, in, intuitionistic kind of union, but, but it requires a kind of a creedal commitment. Uh, 
I take it, jumping in then, mm-hmm. um, at verse 9. Now, I have a slightly different, I have the revised standard sure. version, so it's a little different from what you read. It says, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. All mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. I think there's this notion that with Jesus' gift of knowledge of the Father to us, we become, in a certain sense, unified with the, the Father through Jesus, but it's, it's done by means of, of his living example to us and the things that he taught us. In other words, uh, it's not enough to simply sort of search for God and, and hope to find him. You have to, you have to find him through Jesus and what Jesus taught by means of his living example. And, and so also this notion of, of glory as a visible sign of, of the power of God. Jesus worked these miracles for us. And, and very often they were miracles that at the time would have seemed really astonishing, the, the curing of diseases. Mm-hmm. But in my own mind, what, what has always been sort of more astonishing about these uh, miracles of, of curing is what, they, what I take them to stand for, and that is the forgiveness of sins, the power of God to set us right in his sight with him uh, by a pure free act of his own will, you know, grounded in nothing of, of our own doing. But, of course, we have to be receptive to that. We have to turn towards him. Right? The notion of metanoia, changing your mind and turning towards God, uh, is something that he gives us the power to do, but, of course, we have to do it. How can we do it unless we understand what it is we're turning towards? In fact, let me jump in there a second just sure. to draw the audience's attention back to verse 3. There's, it's an interesting construction. Now, this is eternal life that they should know you, the only true God, and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. What does he mean that this is eternal life, that you should know you? Uh, this, what is eternal life? You know, is eternal life just that I'm going to live forever? Is that all he means here? And, and of course, it's, a, it's in a present tense expression. And <clears throat> I just learned recently through reading some uh, Catholic theology that, in fact, uh, what traditionally Catholic theologians have understood this meaning of eternal life, that it's essentially equivalent to what Catholic theologians call sanctifying grace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the divine life of God that dwells within us through the Holy Spirit, that we receive through baptism, we th- receive through the, the sacraments, that enables us to do what he expects us to do right. and empowers us. So as you're saying here in verse 3, this is sanctifying grace, essentially. It enables you to know him, right. empowers us to dwell within him, and him to dwell with us. I mean, that's what we mean by wanting this grace. So as you said, it's not something we can do on our own, but we're empowered to know him. It's not through, I mean, though I'm a great supporter of going away to college and, and, and getting all the degrees you can get, it's not just through our intellect or through our effort Right. It's through responding to this grace. Right. That's right. And I would emphasize, too, the idea that um, this present tense that you mentioned, that, that this is eternal life, uh, there might be a temptation to think, well, uh, this is my key to getting into heaven or something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, I take it that the idea is much less utilitarian than that. Right. We, we don't uh, turn to God as a means of getting a reward, although that might be a kind of imperfect contrition, but, but perfect contrition consists in uh, desiring this, this unity that is uh, submitting to the will of God and letting it uh, direct your life. In fact, we're reminded of that statement that he makes as a, uh, connected with the, uh, that Jesus makes connected with the Sermon on the Mount, in which he warns people that just because they said, Lord, Lord, doesn't guarantee that they're going to spend eternity with him. Right. Because, the, in fact, the particular qualification that he says, this is in Matthew 7, mm-hmm. he said the reason that they are turned away is because he says, I never knew you. Right. The goal, our goal should be not to be saved, but to be fully known. Right. To enter into this communion with God, yes. to be in a particular relationship with Him. Uh, because anybody can know a fact. You know, I, I can 
teach you, uh, you know, a, a set of dates that are important for a history exam, <laughs> and you can write them down. Um, but to really know something in this sense of communion is different from simply knowing. It's like the difference between knowing these facts, these dates, and knowing how to ride a bike. Right? You, you can yeah. tell someone, here's how you ride a bicycle. You get on it, you start pedaling, you keep your balance. But of course, they're going <laughs> to fall down anyway, right? Uh, there's a real sort of experience, a sort of experiential side to knowing how to do something. And I take it that the kind of knowledge we're talking about here is knowing how to be one with God, that, that it's not just a matter of knowing this fact or that fact, but you have to make it a part of your own being somehow. You know, it's a great example you use riding a bike because, you know, the first step is knowing how to do it, learning what you do, mm-hmm. and then getting up and doing it. But what we don't see that really enables us to ride the bike is a thing called gravity and momentum. Right. Yeah. You know, these are the forces right. uh, that are there that we don't see, but they enabled us to ride the bike. That's a bit like grace. Exactly, yeah. It's a, it's a good, I, I, I saw where you were going, and I thought, <laughs> this is it. This is right. There are these unseen fa- forces, the, the power of sanctifying grace and, and the love of God are, are probably the metaphorical equivalent of gravity and momentum there. Yeah, but you've got to get on a bike and start pedaling right. to experience momentum and gravity. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing with a bit of grace, you know, for us to grow in union, it's a partnership. Right. And, and that's really what he's praying for here, is this partnership. I think so. And also, if I can, just, sure. to, just to cheat a little bit and, and talk <laughs> a little bit about the passage from Luke that I was torn, you know, yeah. the, the, the prodigal son passage has this great scene at the end where the father is, uh, um, you know, he sees the prodigal son returning. He, he sees him while he's still a long way off. And what has always struck me about that particular aspect of the story is this idea that, well, how could the father see the son returning from a long way off if he hadn't been looking for him? Yeah. You know what I mean? He wasn't back in his tent getting things ready for whatever. He was outside looking, and there in the distance is the son. So we have to turn to the father, but he's always waiting for us. <laughs> this, um, this unity, he... Uh, uh, he doesn't use the word Trinity here, of course. The right. word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. Yes, yes, that's very key. But but there's a Trinitarian aspect in this prayer, especially in the context of chapter 14, 15, 16, when he's promising that the Holy Spirit will come that's right. and lead them into all that. But we do see that this unity is there, the Father and the Son and the F- Son and the Father, and yet what enables that unity you know, is, is is the presence of the third person of the Trinity, is the Holy Spirit, right. which is the divine life that we're talking about that dwells within us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really key. We we can take the word, this is sort of sort of typical philosopher speak of me right now, but, <laughs> uh, you know, the word unity can have a lot of different meanings. Sure. And, uh, of course, in, in studying philosophy, uh, especially if you study some of the great metaphysicians like Aristotle or Plato or or in more in the Christian tradition, folks like uh, St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, they're very careful to say exactly what they mean by the word unity. <laughs> um, but here, it doesn't tell us what it is, and mm-hmm. we have to sort of figure it out. But one thing I think is clear is that it, 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 it can't be reduced to just the unity of the believers themselves. If, if we happen to agree on, on something, that's a kind of unity for sure. But there's so much of an emphasis in the Gospel of John on uh, the source of action being in the Father, that uh, whatever unity we have has got to come from the Father, and the, it seems really clear that the archetypal example of what unity is is the relationship between the Father and the Son, and that that gets communicated to us via the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we find ourselves just by living in community and, and agreeing, you know, this is the Mass that we will celebrate or these are the creeds that we will recite together. It's something that comes from above in a way that that makes it quite distinct from the, the, the simple uh, unity of, of a community of persons. Yeah, I really like the, the idea that this knowing, which, you know, if we, we, we make it connected or parallel with this call to unity, mm-hmm. is, is, is a growing experience, something that takes the rest of our life. It's a bit like, to use a different example, instead of riding a bike, we, uh, 
I mean, my son thought he had learned to ride a bike after he finally got up and didn't fall down. Mm-hmm. Well, um, but if you take, for example, you, you learn the fact that God is creator and you accept that fact, but it may take an entire life to fully realize what that means, therefore. Oh, for sure, yeah. And what that says for everything that you are and what you have and what you want to be and and our relationships to one another and understanding the world and the and to have it direct your own will right the way in which you interact with the world mm-hmm. yeah i I agree totally that um and in fact this I think can even be connected this idea that um growing in our knowledge of the Lord is something that uh i think is is mirrored even in uh the the, the sort of the the doctrinal element uh, of, of the church itself, which again, for me, was an attractive thing about this passage, is that it reminded me that there is uh, a kind of an authority that the community has to sort of direct my, my doctrinal beliefs. But of course, as you mentioned earlier, the Trinity is not explicitly mentioned right. in the New Testament. Uh, it's something that, that came to be uh, sort of a, a matter, a necessary condition on being a Christian, you know, and, and how did it come to be that? Well, it was something that the community itself came to recognize by living this life you're talking about, by experiencing the, the grace of the Father and, and uh, the direction of the Holy Spirit. And, and if I can just sort of, again, skip ahead here, uh-huh. down in verse 20, where our Lord says, I, I do not pray for these only, i.e., not just the uh, disciples who are with me right here and now, uh-huh. um, but also for those who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. I, I hear and hear uh, this idea that um, the community of believers uh, will continue to experience this understanding and knowledge of God, but our own actual historical experience has shown us that it, it will develop over time, now, I'm of the school that says it, it doesn't change, right, that no doctrinal teaching of the Church mm-hmm, right. uh, ever goes from, you know, at one point in time we said X, now we say not X. I think that's sort of what you're seeing in the Episcopal Church. You know? at, one, at one time we said that matrimony was between one man and one woman. Now we're saying that's not what it is, right? Yeah, I yeah, think what you see yeah. in the Catholic Church is refinement, or what, what uh, Newman called development of doctrine over time. We, we come to understand uh, what the community has discovered uh, over time uh, in new ways as time goes on and, and new communities, new, new ways of, of experiencing the world become available to us, uh, we don't just reject what, you know, what the past uh, experienced. We, we try to internalize it in our own way so that we can experience with them what they experience. We become one with the past by not rejecting their experience of the world. But although we, we may not be living in third century North Africa or someplace like that, uh, so we, we can't literally experience the world the way someone like that did. Nevertheless, we can find some way to experience in our own lives what they experienced about the world so that we represent a kind of a continuation of that community. And, and so our oneness will consist in this u- unity through time as well as this unity in a more horizontal sense of you know, between believers who are here now or something like that. Yeah, and the very first sentence in the introduction to the new catechism of the Catholic Church, the very first sentence, John Paul II, in his introduction, identified that the Church's primary responsibility is guarding the deposit of faith. Right. And that's it, guarding it, protecting it, preserving it, proclaiming it, passing it on. Mm-hmm. That's what we're to do. It doesn't mean that we are to, uh, you know, re-examine the truth in the light of new information, right? That's right. not what development means. Re-examine it, re-evaluate it, uh, you know, put it on the docket for reshaping, given the fact that, you know, you, Scott, and I know that we are so much more intelligent today than those <laughs> early church fathers, of course. For you know, sure, yeah. We have so much more information with the Internet. and <laughs> We're so much more intelligent than David, and and uh, you know, and, and in fact, I've I've met 
quote, modern scholars, unquote, that uh, I could swear they really felt they were more intelligent than Jesus Christ, you know, because they're correcting what Jesus meant when he said something. Well, oh, for sure. That's not development of doctrine. Right. That's rewriting of doctrine. (laughs) Exactly. And it happens all the time. Right. Uh, But that's, of course, the the antithesis of, of working towards unity. Yeah. Uh, unless you just want to agree with everything I say. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. I think that, um, again, not to pick on the Episcopal Church, but it, it's where I came from, so yep. it's what I'm most familiar with. This notion that what we believe as a community uh, has got to be unified in some sense, for a lot of people, it, that just means unified with the current trends or what have you, rather than the unity I was speaking of, of, of with the whole tradition going all the way back to the Apostles. Like I say, when I was first entering the church, uh, the Episcopal Church, they had just started ordaining women. And, of course, that was the big, you know, in, in the 70s, women's mm-hmm. liberation was, was like a big deal, right? That's what was going on all around in the culture. So that was the, that was the move to make. Nowadays, with the, uh, the consecration of an openly homosexual bishop, right, the, yep. the, 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 the culture of the day is all about the acceptance of homosexuality, and we've got all this discord over things like Proposition 8 and... And, and other sorts of things in the media, again, it seems as though what they're concerned to do is make their doctrine consistent with the spirit of the age rather than with this long-standing tradition that, in my view, through the, the Church, we can trace back straight to the apostles themselves and, and from them to, to Christ himself. So for me, uh, as someone looking at the Catholic Church, that was a real source of, uh, of, of comfort and inspiration to know that there was an institution within which the vicissitudes of, of the material world uh, could have no effect on the stands that it would take vis-a-vis knowing uh, the, the word of life. And sadly, within the Catholic Church in the last 50 years particularly, there have been educators and uh, theologians and then many laity led by them that misunderstood what Vatican II was all about, right. thinking that it was a break, yeah, yeah, a, a break from the continuity of truth, and therefore looked at the teachings of Vatican II augmented by you know, the sign of the times and end up going in a radical direction yeah. than the continuity with the past. It's really strange, right? The opening of the windows, right? The adjournamento mm-hmm. and all that. It's like, uh, it, well... To, to look at the catechism that, that you were just quoting from, if, if you look at the footnotes in there, yeah. I'd say a good 50% of those footnotes are footnotes to the Council of Trent, mm-hmm. right? So there's clearly uh, a sense in, in the minds of the people who, who really write things like the catechism and, and who really understand uh, the, the call of Vatican II. Uh, there's this real sense that, that the past is not something that we're going to correct, it's something that we're going to understand better. Yeah. <laughs> and understanding it better may mean putting it in different terms, terms that'll be easier for people in our time and place to understand. But to put something into to different terms um, does not necessarily mean to change the content of what it's saying. And yet, I think you're right. A lot of people think that, well, in fact, I, I participated in an RCIA class in which one of the leaders said, you know, this is one of the areas in which Vatican II changed the teaching of the Catholic Church, and I, I, I thought I was going to have an aneurysm right then and there. I thought yeah. this is not—it's not true. This is not a. It's not true, and b. This is really bad catechesis. You don't want to start someone off by saying, you know, welcome to the Catholic Church. The good thing about us is you can, you know, once you figure out what the truth is, you know, then you can just commit yourself to that, because <laughs> it really does put the authority to interpret things into the hands of the individual. Yeah, when, when Blessed John the Twenty Third, uh, in response to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, called the Council and opened the windows, you know, the doors, as you just said, mm-hmm. his goal was, you know, gang, we are called to take the gospel to the world. Yes. That's what that was about. Exactly. And maybe the problem was that so many of the faithful involved with the Vatican Council presumed, of course, we're not changing the past. We're, yeah. we're making it relevant. We're not changing it. Yeah. But people because maybe it wasn't always expressed as succinctly as that, took them to th- mean that the past is being left behind, and we've end up with, in many ways, problems that we have today trying to clarify just what you're trying to clarify, right. that unity meant unity 
with the church that extends all the way back to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Let's take another break. All right. And when we come back, let's let's look at some more, maybe one or two more sentences from this great prayer uh, for the, the good of our audience today. All right. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Scott Carson. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at one 800 664 The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Scott Carson. Real quickly, just a couple of, of great announcements to make. WJTA, Jesus the Answer, 88.9 FM in Leipzig, Glandorf, Ohio. Welcome to the uh, broadcasting audience in the Toledo Diocese. Congratulations to Tom and Marianne Dietering, Jim Lammers and the staff at Holy Family Communications in Leipzig. WJTA went on the air with EWTN Catholic Radio on July 26th. And also wanted to extend another uh, welcome to K. EDC, Education for the Domestic Church, 88.5 FM, now serving the Hearn Bryan College Station, Texas, located in the Austin Diocese. Congratulations to uh, Red Sea Executive Director Dennis Maka, Jeff Perodowski, Mark Spearman, and the rest of the board and staff at Red Sea, KEDC, officially went on the air with EWTN Radio on July 28th. So a big welcome to all our listeners now hearing EWTN Catholic Radio loud and proud in Leipzig, Ohio on 88.9 FM and throughout the Brazos Valley in Hearn, Bryan College, Texas, Station, Texas on 88.5 FM. And so, Scott, a couple more words. What is at least one more verse you'd like to look at? Well, all right, let me just... um cheat a little and read two verses. Okay, great, great. Uh, 24 and, and 26. All right. Again, this is Revised Standard Version. Sure. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, may be with me where I am, to behold my glory, which thou hast given me in thy love for me before the foundation of the world. And then 26, I made known to them thy name, and I will make it known that the love with which thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. I'm really interested in this connection between glory and God's love. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I, I was really sort of blown away by when I was first studying uh, the Christian religion and to think about converting was, was uh, the notion that God is love. And the idea in uh, St. Augustine uh, uh, that the Son is, is eternally begotten of the Father, that is to say, uh, he's co-eternal with the Father. He didn't come into being at a point in time, but he does come from the Father. He is, in a certain sense, the manifestation of God's love. Um, when I first converted to Catholicism, the priest who received me uh, said to me, um, we, were, we were just talking about various issues, and he just sort of spread his hands at one point and said, that's incarnation for you. <laughs> and, and for me, that really rang true, that the Catholic Church is a really incarnational church, that, that for us, Jesus is a living manifestation of God, uh, a sign or a, a representation of what God is. And it seems to me that, that 
the emanation of that love to us through the Holy Spirit calls us to be a further manifestation of God's love to the world, and that this is ultimately what the glory of God is. It's making visible God's power in some way. Now, we can't work miracles the way Jesus did, but we can be living signs of God's presence in the world in a way that, that only the Christian community can be. And in doing that, we, we manifest God's glory to the world. And, and so for me, uh, this notion that, that, that God, lo- I mean, it's again a great theme in the gospel, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, well, here we are continuing that, that great gift, that giving uh, in whatever way we can. And, uh, um, you know, for me, that, that really sums up the Christian message. You know, that, I guess that's also why I like that prodigal son story so much, the great mercy and loving kindness of God manifested in, as, as sort of the acceptance of the repentant sinner. To me, that, you know, speaking as a repentant sinner, that, that's a really important thing for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of us, too. Yeah. You know, it's sad in our culture, the word glory or glorify uh, too often is seen as synonymous with praise. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, or, you know, almost an egotistical cult of personality. Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the kind of glory that a, a rock star has. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> look how great I am. Yeah. And that's, and then if we take that and then look at the transfiguration of Jesus on the Mount, then we're thinking that's what he's all about. He's standing mm-hmm. up there like a great rock star. Yeah. And, and, in fact, <laughs> with whole, his groupies. And a whole play was based on that Jesus Christ superstar. Right. You know, but, but I think your point is, is really good. And that is that the word love, and glory can almost be interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, that they may see my glory. Really, we're saying that they might see my love. Right. I mean, as you said, glory is the incarnational expression of this presence of God's love in our life. When we're called to glorify God, it means we're to love Him with all that we are. And uh, boy, you know, the time ran out. Yeah, I hear that. <laughs> I talk too much. I'm sorry. No, no, it was great. I really enjoyed it. We'll have you back because... I hope so. I'd be happy I, to do it. And I'd, I would love to even talk more about how authentic philosophy is really what this is all about that we're talking about. Oh, believe me, I, I could give a lecture on <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> well, thanks, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. All right, God bless. Look forward to being with you again. And audience, thank you so much for joining us on this program. Remember, deepinscripture.com website, all the archives. My constant prayer is that this program is an encouragement to your faith, that you indeed might grow more in union with our Lord Jesus Christ and his church. God bless. See you next week.